Appreciate the presence of everyone. Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you and are eager to take that Bible and study with us. I encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 will be our text for our study this morning. And hopefully this evening as well, we'll continue in some things found in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 4 make the point in this chapter that we are to set our affections on things that are above. If then you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. What on earth is that about? And why does he make that point right here? Set your affections on things that are above. That is in light of some things that have been said in chapter 2. In chapter 2 he had dealt with, as in other chapters, with the Colossian heresy, as we call it, for lack of better expression, which was a multifaceted concept that it also involved, among other things, asceticism. And that is where they would deny themselves of certain things, bodily experiences, because they thought that made them holier. Their focal point of touch not, taste not, handle not, their focal point in chapter 2, the thing he's dealing with, focused on the things of the earth. And so Weaver said in his work on Colossians, what did this mean to the Colossians? What is the point being made? Those whom Paul had been describing in the previous chapters sought for a higher mode of living, but it fell short of that which the Christian is to pursue. Their quest for mystical experiences was limited to the low level of such created existences as the principalities and powers and their emphasis on asceticism, touch not, taste not, handle not, kept them bound to matters on the earth. The contrast is between things that are only subordinate and instrumental, things of the earth, and things that are supreme and final, things of heaven. That's what it meant to the Galatians. Rather than follow after some of the elements of this Colossian heresy that binds you to your focal point on earth, get your focal point on things in heaven. You say, but we're not bound by that. I don't know of anyone present that deals with this doctrine of asceticism. So what does that mean to us? Barclay suggested this. But there will be this difference. From now on, the Christian will see everything in the light and against the background of eternity. He will no longer live as if the world is all that mattered. He will see the world against the background of the larger world of eternity. So what use can I make of verses 1 to 4? Set your affections on things that are above and set your mind not on the earth but on the things of heaven. What does it mean to me? It means that from now on in my life, I view everything against the backdrop of eternity and light of eternity. Now part of that begins at verse 5 of putting off the old man. Verses 5 through 9 describes putting off the old man. That's part of setting your affections on things that are above. If you're going to live your life in view of eternity, and eternity being the background and the backdrop of every decision you make, you're going to put off the old man. Last week we talked about the battle of flesh and spirit. 
And in that, we talked about three or five principles. We talked about understand, remember, decide, kill, and continue. That we need to understand the battle. And part of understanding the battle between flesh and spirit, flesh is what I want to do and spirit has to do with what I know to be right. And there is this battle between those two concepts. Connecting with that, I want us to talk about this same battle, but look at it in view of Colossians chapter 3 of putting off the old man. So let's talk about putting off the old man, Colossians 3, 5 to 9. So if you don't already have your Bible open, turn to Colossians 3. Get your Bible app out if you don't have a Bible with you. And let's follow along and look on our text at Colossians chapter 3 beginning at verse 5. If you don't have a text with you, we'll put it on the screen here before you. Colossians 3 beginning at verse 5. This talks about putting off the old man. Let's see what the text actually says and then we'll raise three questions about it. Here Paul writes saying, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, you yourselves are to put off all these, anger. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We have only five verses here, but we have a great deal of information found in those five verses. Here's the first of the three things we're going to raise. Let's raise the question of what is to be done with the old man. What's to be done with the old man? We'll see what the old man is in a moment. But let's start on the note where he, where he starts, beginning at verse 5. What's to be done with the old man? In this battle of flesh and spirit, something is to be done with the old man, the old manner of life. What's to be done with that? Well, let's notice that there are three times in two verses, or three verses, that he uses the following expressions. Here's what to be done with the old man. Now this laces in with what we talked about last week, but I want you to see it in this context. And here's what he says. <clears throat> At verse 5 he said, Therefore put to death your members. Whatever your members are, we'll get to that in a moment, you're to <coughs> put that to death. Verse 8 he said, Now you yourselves are to put off all these. Here's something you're to put off. And then in verse 9 he said, Since you put off the old man with his deeds, well, here's the first of those two things that are mentioned in those two verses, three verses. Something is to be put to death. And that reference must be understood in light of some things in chapter 2 and in verse 20. Look at chapter 2 and verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though you live in the world are you subject to, your, uh, do you subject yourselves to regulation? Now notice at verse 20, you died with Christ. In other words, here is, is a picture of, of the old man dying, the old manner of life, the life of sin being crucified or dying. Now what happens in chapter 3 and in verse 1? Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, if you were raised with Christ, it is a picture of dying and then there is a resurrection like Romans 6 talks about. You die to sin and then you're raised to a new different life where now you set your affections on things that are above. And just as the physical body Cannot no longer, can no longer be active anymore once it's dead. So likewise, the old life of sin, once it's put to death, is not alive anymore. Don't keep it alive, but put it to death. We saw that in our study last time. But here's the second thing. Notice in verses 8 and 9, he talks about putting it off. Now these are the same two 
focal points that we mentioned in our study last week. So we touch on them briefly. But here is the comparison. He moves from the comparison of crucifying or killing something to the change of garments. And it's the idea of a garment that's worn out or soiled or stained and is unfit to be worn. And what you do is you change the garment and you toss it aside, you throw it aside, you put it off. And so you change that worn garment that is no longer fit to be worn. And that's going to fit well with some language he uses later at verse 7. There are some things that is not fit for you to wear anymore. Change your garment and put on something new. So what's to be done with the old man? You put him to death, you put him off, you kill it, you get rid of that. Here's the second of the three things we're going to raise, and we'll spend most of our time right here. In verse 5 and in verses 8 and 9, we need to raise the question, what is the old man? I know what's to be done with him. He's to be put to death or to put off. Whichever connotation rings a bell with you, either kill the man or put off the garment. But what is the old man? What are we talking about? Well, let's start at verse 9 of our text. Verse 9 says, Since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So verse 9 is telling me that Paul is saying the old man being put off is the old man, the old life of sin that has been put off. In fact, it is the things mentioned in the context. He mentions a number of things. He mentions fornication. He mentions uncleanness at verse 5. He mentions passion and evil desire and covetousness and idolatry. And he mentions disobedience. He mentions lying and anger and wrath and malice. All of that's part of the old man. Furthermore, notice at verse 7, he talks about your members, or verse, uh, verse, verse 5, he talks about your members, therefore put to death your members which are upon the earth. Now, what's the focal point of your members? That focuses on the physical body, but the focal point seems to be that our physical bodies become the instrument through which sin operates. So he's not saying kill your body. That's not the idea. But put to death the use of your body to exercise in the sins, whether it be fornication, whether it be in anger, whether it be in attitude, whether it be in language, or the overt act of adultery, whatever the case may be, as per the context. So he's dealing with the matter of sin as per the context. That's the old man. But now he identifies more specifically what we talk about. So let's talk about the things that are to be put off. Let's begin to list these. There are a number of things found in these five verses. First of all, he mentions fornication. The old man or the members refer to the sins listed in this context and any other sin that's like that. So what kind of things are to be put off? You put to death. First of all, he mentions fornication. What is fornication? From the word pornea, which means prostitution, unchastity, fornication of every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. So says Bedag. It's a general term. It's a broad term. And it does not refer, as some may think, that it only refers to, to those who are unmarried, and adultery only refers to those who are married, engaging in some unlawful sexual activity. But it's a broad term that encompasses all of that. It encompasses premarital relationships, extramarital relationships, homosexuality, and bestiality. All of that comes under the banner of pornea. It is the idea of any unlawful sexual intercourse. So says Thayer, Bedag, and a host of others say the same kind of thing. So when someone is involved in homosexuality, they're guilty of the sin. When someone is involved in bestiality, they're involved in this sin. If they're having extramarital affairs, they're involved in this sin. 
If it's a premarital relationship, it's involving the sin. That's to be put off. But here's the second thing, closely related to that. And what I want you to notice in this context is how he doesn't mention just various individual sins that have no connection. In fact, he laces these very closely together. The next thing he mentions is the idea of uncleanness. Uncleanness can mean physical uncleanness or moral uncleanness. In this context, it must have reference to moral impurity. It must have a connection with fornication, and thus it involves sexual matters. It's a broader term than fornication, while fornication is a broad term. It's not as broad as uncleanness. Because uncleanness is going to involve things like we may label as fondling or petting, or maybe a loose display of your body. It's the idea of something that's broader than the physical act of fornication. So what he's dealing with in this context, not only do we need to deal with the overt act of sin, back up a little bit and deal with also the things that lead to that overt act of sin. This also is sin. Here is the moral uncleanness, the moral impurity. That needs to be put away as well. But he doesn't stop there. He deals with the next item. And that is in verse 5, he deals with passion or lust. Passion or lust. King James says inordinate affection. It's the idea of lust. Again, in this context, it seems to have reference to sexual matters. Paul's point is that not only should the overt act of unlawful sexual activity be stopped, but also the thoughts that lead to that. That would include the looking and lusting of Matthew chapter 5. In verse 28, a man looks upon a woman to lust. It would involve sexual fantasy. All of that can ultimately lead to the overt act. Notice he keeps backing up a little bit further. So here, first of all, is this overt act. Don't do that. Put that aside. Back up a little bit. Here's something even broader. That which could lead to that. Here's moral impurity that may not involve that overt act. But it does involve impurity. And then back up a little bit. And let's talk about the attitude and the thought process that leads to those two. Put all of that aside, he said. That's to be put off. That's part of putting off that old man. The next thing he mentions is evil desire. Evil desire. That's closely associated with passion. In fact, there's little difference in the two because the both refer, both of them refer to the source of that overt act, whether passion or evil desire. If there is any difference in the two, Shepard said, if we desire to draw a distinction between the two, probably passion is somewhat narrower than desire. And the former represents the evil emotion as an affection which the mind suffers, while the latter represents it as longing that which actually puts forth. If you didn't see a big distinction in that, there is no big distinction in the two. But it has to do with the attitudes that lead, the thought process that leads to the overt act. Weaver said this, it is passion, speaking of this evil desire, an evil desire or inordinate craving for sexual satisfaction that leads to illicit sex relationships. This appears to be Paul's main point in naming the two evils immediately following the first two, fornication and uncleanness. In other words, he's saying by association, the passion and evil desire is closely associated with fornication and uncleanness, has the same kind of connotation. In his list, the things must be put to death, but he does not leave out evil desire for other things. 
In other words, perhaps he's talking about this evil desire that leads to that fornication, but there's evil desire for other things besides that that need to be included. Put that all aside. <clears throat> but he goes further. He talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. Look at verse 5. Covetousness is from the same word that's translated in Ephesians 4.19 as greediness. Greediness or covetousness. That same concept of that greediness or covetousness, it means greedy desire to have more, according to Kenneth Woost. That I want more. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I'm greedy. I want more. I have this attitude of I am covetous. I desire that which I cannot have. And notice he calls that idolatry, that inordinate desire for material things he identifies as being idolatry. Most of us would not think of anybody that we know of guilty of idolatry. Do you know of anybody that bows down before an idol and gives homage to an idol? You say, I don't know of anybody that does that. Do you know of anybody that has an inordinate desire for material things? You say, well, yeah, I know some people like that. Then you know somebody guilty of idolatry. He calls it idolatry. In other words, greed makes, God, uh, makes a God out of material things. In Matthew 6, we cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve one and also serve the other. So when our pursuit for material things interferes with our service to God, we are guilty of idolatry. No wonder then the number of references through the New Testament times warns us about idolatry. It's because greed is idolatry. That needs to be put aside. But now we get interesting now. Because he shifts gears, we look at things that has been mentioned so far. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, or idolatry. Those sound like pretty evil things. Those sound like pretty bad things. I've never been guilty of any of that, you may say. But he begins to add some more things. Having listed that, before he gets through, notice now down at verse 8 he said, Colossians 3 and verse 8, you must also put off all of these. And the first one he mentions is anger. What is anger? Kenneth Wu says, he's a lexicographer who says, it's an abiding, settled, habitual anger that includes in its scope the purpose of revenge. Now let's footnote here to say that there is a place for righteous indignation. There is a time and a place for anger. Be ye angry and sin not, Ephesians 4.26. This must not be what he's talking about. This must be, as Wolf says, some kind of an abiding or settled anger that has in its scope the purpose of revenge. Perhaps the context will help us with that. Vine says something very similar. A more settled and abiding condition of the mind frequently in view of taking revenge. Has anyone ever done something to you where, where you get so stirred with this, this agitation, this settled and abiding condition of the mind, you're so angry, you would like to take some revenge on them and do something. I don't mean you kill them or you want to hit them, but you want to get even with them. You want to settle the score with them. Perhaps that's the anger that is described here. Now, this is quite interesting. Weaver makes this observation that while there is a place for righteous indignation, we should not use that to justify all of our anger. 
You see, Christians need to have enough conviction about the truth of God and the need to love God and His truth enough that they will be stirred emotionally by wrongdoing. That's righteous indignation. When wrong is done, we ought to be stirred that wrong has been done. He's right about that. Christians must be careful that his anger is properly motivated and rightly directed and controlled. A good test for the Christian is for him to ask how much of his anger arises from the fact that wrong is done and how much from the fact that it was done to him. I'll tell you, that stings a little, doesn't it? That yes, I ought, to be, I ought to be stirred when I see wrong done, but I'm really motivated when it's wrong is done to me. Which is really moving you. That may have to do with whether or not we're guilty of this anger in this context. Said, There's no place for this anger that we're talking about in this context. Get rid of it. Throw it aside. Put it to death. Closely related, he mentions wrath. He mentions wrath in verse 8. Put off all these. Anger. And the next thing he mentions is wrath. Which says that wrath is a boiling agitation of feeling a sudden violent anger. The difference between anger and wrath seems to be one of degree. So there's not much difference. No, there's not a lot of difference. But anger, if it's not controlled, soon turns to wrath. And so here's part of the warning of this text. Put the anger away and put the wrath away. But you put the anger away before it leads to wrath. Before there is this sudden violent anger that bursts forth. This agitation of your mind that you're upset because wrong was done to you and you have the view of revenge. Put it aside before it ever leads to wrath. Well then closely related he mentions malice. What is malice? Again I quote from Kenneth Woost. He says it's malignity, ill will, desire to injure, wickedness, depravity. It seems to be closely related to that of anger and wrath. And the focus is more on the intentions to injure or injure or wrong someone else. Again, it seems to be the progression that's taking place and the idea of degree. Anger turns to wrath and if unchecked, it develops into the evil intent to seek to injure the one that the wrath is directed toward. You see the progression? Just like the evil desire of passion leads to uncleanness and leads to fornication, likewise, the anger could easily lead to wrath, and that wrath could lead me to having malice, this hatred in my heart. Oh, yeah, they made me mad. And now I'm, I'm thinking about doing something to them, and now I'm, I'm hateful toward them. I'm ready to do something. I'm ready to execute. What is it that I'm going to execute? It may be blasphemy, verse 8. Blasphemy. There says blasphemy is railing or reviling, slander, distraction, speech injurious of another's good name. Now we could speak blasphemy toward God, Matthew 12. But in this context, he seems to be talking about blasphemy that is directed against man. Now, is, should we put aside blasphemy against God? Well, certainly so. But this, he seems to be dealing with progression of thought. Things that are laced together, things that tie together. And this, this matter is where malice can be, can, uh, one could use malice to unleash his anger and blasphemy 
is what is given toward the recipient of, of one's anger. So again, I have anger that leads to my wrath, which leads to this hatred, and now I'm ready to blaspheme and destroy their name because of what they did to me or what I perceived them to do to me. And then notice verse 8. He says, filthy language. What are you to put aside? Put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. Filthy language out of your mouth. Just get it out of your mouth. Filthy language. What is filthy language? Thayer says, filthy language is foul speaking, low and obscene speech, shameful speaking. Several translations use the phrase shameful speaking. Like the American Standard. The New American Standard will use the word abusive speech. What's included in that? Well, profanity would be one. Cursing. Filthy jokes. Discussion of filthy topics. This may be an outgrowth like blasphemy of that anger and malice. Because someone made me angry, I didn't deal with that and that led to this wrath, a greater degree, which led to a greater malice this hatred which causes me to blaspheme and now i'm cursing because filthy language is coming out of my mouth because i've been so angry closely connected is the last in the list and that is lying lying is it uttering an untruth an attempt to deceive by falsehood perhaps like blasphemy and filthy language may be an outgrowth of this anger that friction between people causes them either to lie to or about someone. You've seen that. You've seen where somebody is so angry, they start telling something they know to be untrue about that person or to that person. If it come, somehow could cause them some harm. Now I want you to notice the types of sins that are listed here. Let's, let's go through the list again and then we're going to categorize some of those. That he's saying, here's the old man that's to be put aside. There is this battle between flesh and spirit we've been talking about going on. Here's what I know I ought to do, but here's what I'm often tempted to do, and there's this battle going on. And so Colossians 3 says you need to put off the old man if you want to get your focus on things that are above. What do you mean, Paul? What I mean is you put away fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness. I'm talking about things like anger and, and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language and lying. What a unique list that he put together. But what's interesting to me is he deals with things in this context that are to be put to death. And he mentions sensual and sexual matters. Not just the overt act, but the things that lead to that. More about that in a second. But he also deals with attitudes and thoughts. He doesn't just deal with this overt act. That's terrible to be involved in the sin of fornication. But it's also in, terrible to be involved in, in these thoughts of anger and malice. <clears throat> but it's also bad to be involved in sins of the tongue like lying and blasphemy. Those are just as bad. But notice the progression that we've been talking about. And, and we see this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's turn over to the 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 just for a moment to see another context where this is true. You've heard me talk about this passage many times. <clears throat> that the Bible not only condemns the ultimate sin, but backs up and says, you know what? Things that, that come before that is also sinful. You need to stop that. And things come before that, you need to stop. Because these sins back here lead to this ultimate sin. Let's see a case in point. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, abstain from fornication. Have nothing to do with that. 
Okay. Well and good, I understand that. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification. In other words, control your body. Uh, here's the overt act. Don't commit that. But in order to do that, back up a step and control your body. If you control your body, you won't ever engage in fornication. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back one more step. Look at verse 5. Not in passions of lust. How do I avoid this overt act? You start with controlling your thoughts. And that controls your body, which avoids the sin. That's what he's saying right here. In Colossians chapter 3. So go back to Colossians 3. He's saying, don't commit the sin of fornication, but let's back up. Don't engage in uncleanness, impurity, which is broader than that. Don't do that either. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Help, help me here. I, I'm not to commit this sin. How can I avoid that? By main, uh, getting rid of uncleanness. Well, how can I avoid that sin? By controlling my thinking, my passions, and my lust. That's how I do that. But then he talks about more progression, as we've already mentioned. If it don't stop the anger, that can brew to the point that I'm guilty of this wrath, which is a step in, in degree further down the line, which could lead to malice, which could lead to blasphemy, which could lead to lying, which could lead to slander, which could lead to filthy language as per the context. Now let's raise one more question. Let's go to verses 6 and 7 in our text. And the question is, why put off the old man? You're talking about putting off the old man. What's to be done needs to be put off. What is the old man? It's the life of sin. He enumerates a number of sins. Sins of sexual nature, sins of thought, and sins of the tongue. So why do I put off the old man? He gives two reasons in the context. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Beginning at verse 6 he said, Because of these things the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So here's the first. The old man stirs the wrath of God. So if you're involved in fornication, it stirs the wrath of God. If you're involved in lying, it stirs the wrath of God. If you're involved in anger, the anger in this context, you stir the wrath of God. Any one of these sins you mentioned stirs the wrath of God. What does that mean? Well, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. It's the same concept. It is the fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12, those two chapters deal with those two principles. In other words, we face the judgment of God. So why, why do I need to put it off? Because that old man, if you go back into that, that just stirs the wrath of God and God will execute his wrath in the day of judgment. Here's the second thing. The old man doesn't fit with the new way of living. The old man doesn't fit with the new way of living. Remember we talked about that concept earlier. What doesn't fit. And here we're seeing that same concept here. It doesn't fit. It doesn't mesh with the new way of living. So look at verse 7. Verse 7 said, In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. This is the way you used to live. It's different now. He's going to talk about putting on the new man. In other words, he says... That the sins just listed are not to be a part of the new life, it's a part of the old life. It just doesn't fit. To be engaging in fornication and at the same time seeking things that are above doesn't work. Lying and seeking things that are above doesn't work. Blasphemy and seeking the things above doesn't work. Evil passion 
and seeking things above. Doesn't work. Can't do that. And so it doesn't fit with the old man. In other words, I want you to notice there, there are two words that are used in verse 7. And when once you walked and you lived in them. You once walked and you lived in them. That indicates their, their, their be, walking indicates their behavior and living has to do with their disposition. But there are a couple of things I learned from that. At least one I want to mention in a practical sense. I want you to notice that these who are now in chapter 1 and in verse 2 are described as faithful Christians. They are faithful brethren. Chapter 1 verse 2 says they are faithful brethren. He considers those to whom he writes as faithful. They're under the threat of the Colossian heresy, but no indication it's taken them away yet. But he calls them faithful. Now you say, why do you make that point? Because those who are now considered faithful, look at verse 7 again. They once, it's on the screen if you don't have your Bible open. They had once walked and lived in these kinds of sins. Fornication, evil desire, blasphemy, anger, malice, filthy language. That's the way they lived. Now again, the idea of walking and living indicates not just a one time or an occasional, but this was their walk or their life. This is the way they walked and this is the way they lived. In other words, they lived in adultery. They just committed it all the time. They lived in lying. They lied all the time. They lived in anger. They were angry all the time. They were living in passion and lust. They lusted for everything. But now they're considered faithful. And you say, what's your point? My point is that people can change. So when someone comes along and says, you know, the reason I live like I live and, and I'm, I'm having a real problem is you don't know how I was raised. I didn't have good parents. If that's your excuse, you need to stop it. Because these people were not raised by good parents. When someone says, you, you don't understand, I was raised in a church that, that allowed and tolerated all these things, and that's why I'm doing that. If that's your excuse, you need to stop it, because these people came from religion that tolerated all of that. This is the way they live. This was their manner of life. That's what they did. But they changed. You say, I, my friends I used to run around with, we all did these things. It's hard to quit. If that's your excuse, you need to stop it. Because these people had friends like that. They lived this way. But they changed. They changed. And so can you. So what have we seen from Colossians chapter 3? That we're to put off the old man. That's part of this learning. The idea of the battle between flesh and spirit. What's to be done with the old man? You're to put him to death. Put him aside. Get rid of him. Kill him. Cast him aside like an old worn out garment. What is the old man? It's a whole life of sin that was to be given up when you obeyed the gospel, including the number of sins mentioned in the context. Well, why put him off? Because it makes God angry. And because it just doesn't fit with the life you're trying to live now. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't mesh. So that's why it needs to be put aside. If you're not a Christian or if you're not a child of God, you must come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because that's what God demands of us in making the change described in this context. And repenting of those sins, turning from that, putting to death the past way of life. 
acknowledging that faith and being put on, putting on the Lord in the waters of baptism that we might obtain the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, we hope and trust that you'll come while together we stand and while we sing.